Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 16. Last week, I wrapped up the history of the people, places, and things found in Joshua Chapter 11. In that episode covering Anab and Ashdod, if you missed it, you should really go back and give it a listen. Which leads me to Joshua Chapter 12, a part of the text chock full of places, In that case, a listing of all the kings, cities, and territories defeated by Joshua and the Israelites as part of their conquest of Canaan. And with that, let's get started. The first paragraph of 12 gives the rough borders of the territory taken by the Israelites. I'll spare you the verbatim. You know where to find it. But embedded in this are two places and a people I haven't yet covered. The places are Edri and Selka. First, Edri. In this chapter, we're told that Edri was a place formerly ruled by King Og. What we're not told was if it was a city, or merely a geographic location. Way back in Numbers 21, King Og of Bashan was defeated by the Israelites sometime before they crossed the Jordan into Canaan. In that chapter, The narrative relays that the battle took place at Edri. I didn't cover that history then, saving it for the future, and the book of Joshua is the last place it will be mentioned in the text. The place wasn't terribly far from the city of Ashtaroth. Deuteronomy 3 indicates that it was the limit of the territory controlled by Og, meaning on its border. The place would be in the territory allotted to the tribe of Manasseh, more specifically, in that of the family of Mahir. All of this places it to the east of the Jordan River, and would be occupied by the Israelites before they would cross the river into Canaan. The small modern town of Dera is thought to be at the same location. This city is in the southern portion of the modern country of Syria, which would place it about 29 miles, 47 kilometers east of the Sea of Galilee. While this location is generally unremarkable, there is one remark worth making. This city has an exceptional subterranean city, which to date has only been partially uncovered and explored. The underground layer is extensive enough to include streets, shops, rooms, cisterns, and caves, all cut into the basaltic rock. The general thought is that it dates to well past the period when it was occupied by the Israelites, probably the Greek or Roman era, though it's possibly from earlier. The theory is that it was used by the residents when they needed shelter, perhaps when being attacked by an outside force. The construction of this underground lair was aided by the position of the city itself. On a bluff, overlooking a southern fork of the Yarmouk River. From this vantage point, high above the valley floor, the lookouts could keep an eye out for invaders approaching from both the south and east. When the Israelites showed up, at the time being led by Moses, they would have likely approached from the south, but the actual direction wasn't recorded anywhere in the Old Testament. While the text does record that after defeating the Amorite king Sihon, the Israelites turned and went up the road to face King Og of Bashan. If this was being recorded modernly, 
we would associate up with north. But we have compasses, and there's syntax. Up generally meant a gain in elevation. Moses would lead the Israelites to victory over Og at Edri, with the city being destroyed after the battle. While the victory over Og is noted in Numbers, the destruction of the town is mentioned later in Deuteronomy 3. But it's never said that the town was leveled, raised, or burned. Instead, we're told that the Israelites struck Og and his towns until not a single survivor was left. There was no citadel that they did not take from them. Sixty towns, the whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og and Bashan. All of these were fortress towns with high walls, double gates, and bars, besides a great many villages. The Israelites utterly destroyed them, in each city killing all of the men, women, and children, but all of the livestock and the plunder of the towns they kept as spoil. Other place in the first part of Joshua 12 is Selkah. It too was mentioned in Deuteronomy 3, but unlike Edri, that appearance was its first. And it would also mark the boundary of the territory held by King Og of Bashan. Though the text isn't specific, but instead says that the eastern portion of the tribe of Manasseh would be given all the kingdom of Og of Bashan. This at least implies that Selkah would go to that tribe too. Later, though, in 1 Chronicles, the text mentions that the sons of Gad lived beside them in the land of Bashan as far as Selkah. Remember, this was hundreds of years later, and the conflicts between the tribes certainly led to moving boundaries. Also like Edri, it was built on a hill, in this case, on the southern slope of the mountain of Bashan. That certainly makes sense. The place is now known as Salkhad, also in southern Syria, less than 10 miles, 16 kilometers from the border with Jordan. As for this mountain, it's relatively tall, rising 6,000 feet, 1,800 meters above sea level. But that's not its most notable feature. What's more mentionable is that it's a dormant volcano. How dormant is a matter of speculation having erupted last between 2.6 million years ago and within the last decent millennium, or two. So, between 10 and 20,000 years ago. And that really doesn't do any good in narrowing down the period. This volcano rises above the town. In its crater stands a castle, though I could find no indication of when this was built, but speculation places it during the Roman era and it would be occupied through the Crusades. Also like Edri, due to its location on the side of this mountain, the city has an expansive view to the south and east, meaning they too could have seen the approaching Israelites. The only other mention in the biblical text is in 1 Chronicles 5, in the same passage as Edri, as a boundary of territory held by the tribe of Gad, and that's it for Selkah. The people mentioned in the first paragraph of 12 are the Mahakathites. These were the residents of a small Syrian kingdom known as Makkah. 
what little we know about them does indicate that at least a portion of their border was shared with Geshur, and likely with Bashan to the west of the latter. Deuteronomy 3 tells us that Jair the Manassite would take what little land fell within the confines of Mecca. In a broader scope, the border of both the Geshurites and the Makathites, along with all of the land around Mount Hermon, all of this was given to the eastern half of the tribe of Manasseh. But the inhabitants of these kingdoms, those that were there when the Israelites arrived after the Exodus, were not killed off or even driven out by the Israelites. They would instead remain and live under the rule of the Israelites. How all of that worked on a day-to-day basis is never really written about. The general assumption is that they were at a minimum of a lower class, maybe hired workers in occupying the lower professions, or, at a more extreme, servants. But the servant possibility was never written about, so even less likely, at least at this point in the text. Over the next couple hundred years, something happened. Second Samuel records that the descendants of Ammon hired mercenaries from Makkah, along with similar soldiers from among the Ammonites and the Arameans, in the kingdom of Tob. This assembled army would form up near Medaba. David catches wind of this threat and sends his nephew Joab, who's also the commander of the Israelite army, to oppose the assembled enemy. The Ammonites came out and drew up in a battle array at the entrance of the gate. But the Arameans, the men of Tob and Makkah, were by themselves in the open country. Essentially, their forces had split and could be fought separately, one at a time. When Joab saw that the enemy had assembled and were positioned both in front of and behind his forces, he chose a portion of the better Israelite soldiers, forming them up against the Arameans. The remaining soldiers he put under his brother Abishai, and he set those troops against the Ammonites. Then he gave his command, telling the generals and the assembled troops, If the Arameans are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be strong, and let us be courageous for the sake of our people, and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. This roughly aligns with what Moses told the people in Deuteronomy 20 at least the part concerning warfare and commands to the soldiers, an address that occurred hundreds of years before Joab and David. In that passage, Moses exhorted the future commanders of the military to tell the troops, just before battle, When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots, an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Before you engage in battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the troops and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near to do battle against your enemies. Do not lose heart, or be afraid, or panic, or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you victory. Back in 2 Samuel, Joab and the people who were with him moved forward into battle against the Arameans, and they fled before him. 
When the Ammonites saw that the Arameans fled, they likewise fled before the general Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. After this, and when the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they assembled. Hadazazor, the king of Zobah, which was an Aramean kingdom, assembled an even larger force consisting of soldiers from the far side of the Euphrates. David learns of this and gathers the entire Israelite army, crosses the Jordan, and formed up at Helam, which was somewhere to the south of the Sea of Galilee. The Arameans assembled their army against David, and the battle ensued. Before long, the Arameans were fleeing in retreat. David, or at least his forces with David getting credit, slaughtered some 700 chariot teams, along with 40,000 horse-mounted cavalry troops, which I recognize as redundant, but I'll let it stand, if only for clarity. Among those wounded in the battle was Shobuk, the commander of the Aramean army. At some point afterwards, he would die of his wounds. But the Israelites did not kill all of the enemy, as shortly later in the text, we're told that all of the kings who had been servants of Hadazor saw that they had been defeated by Israel. They made peace with David and became subject to them. And this is key, as unlike in Joshua, in this case, their servitude was explicitly stated. There was another consequence to this action. After this battle and defeat, the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites. Circling back to Makkah, this small city was probably located east of the Jordan River, south of Mount Hermon, and north of the city of Gishor, which gives us a rough triangulation without a clear delineation of what was to its east, but close enough for the purposes of this podcast. The text also indicates that the Makathites were completely surrounded by the Israelites, surrounded enough that Joshua 13 in the King James records that they continue to dwell among the Israelites until this day. And that's it for Makkah and the Makathites, and allows me to move to the next part of the chapter in a large switching of gears. I feel like there should be a bit of a dramatic pause, or at least something longer than the usual second I give for such topic shifts. When I first kicked off the history of the book of Joshua, I mentioned that chapter 12 was a turning point in the narrative, and that turning point is now, with a list of all the kings and places the Israelites defeated, all 31 of them. If I were starting the podcast series at this point, covering all 31 would take months. But, as fortune would have it, in reality the combination of luck and that I've been doing this for nearly five years most of these places have already been covered, so not months, but perhaps two weeks, maybe three. And I'll use my license as the podcast writer to deviate from the order presented in the text, if only to best fill my self-imposed half-hour episode length. But not only that, there's no indication in the text that the order the kingdoms are presented in Joshua matters meaning it may or may not be the order the Israelites defeated all of the kingdoms of Canaan and beyond. And with all of that stated, let's start ticking off the list. 
First up, at least among those I haven't covered, is Jerusalem, but still, not yet. Next is Geder. This mention in Joshua is the one and only place it's found in the biblical text, which should make my next statement very predictable and self-evident. Not much is known about it. It may have been the same as a city called Beth Gitter in 1 Chronicles 2. There's nothing in the outside record. It's thought to have been north of Hebron, west of the Dead Sea, south of Bethlehem, and east of Lachish, which would place it at least near the Judea mountains. And that's it. Next up is Tapwa. This name has a couple mentions in the Old Testament, which, while it gives me more to go on than Gedder, it doesn't add any sort of clarity, as these mentions are of four different sorts. The first is Taffa, a town in the West Bank, four miles, just over six kilometers west of Hebron, and likely the same town mentioned in 2 Kings. There's a similarly named place called Intapwa, found in some translations of Joshua, and thought to be a natural spring, a spring near Yusuf. But Joshua 12 says a king of Tapwa was defeated, and this wording usually indicates a city, not a water source. First Chronicles names a son of Hebron as Tapwa, descended down the line from Judah, the son of Jacob turned Israel probably not directly related to the city mentioned in Joshua, unless it had a pre-existing name that was later changed to Tapwa. That may be too far of a stretch, though. Last, there is the possibility that Tapwa was a town bordering Ephraim and conquered by Manasseh, about the only of these four possibilities with anything in the outside record is the city on the West Bank which is worth a minute or two of exploration. Sometimes you will see Tapwa rendered as Beth Tapwa. Just a couple of chapters later, in Joshua 15, it was recorded in this form. I likely should have mentioned this years ago, but didn't. Anyway, when you see a city in this region with the prefix Beth, that simply translates from Hebrew to English as house of, extending that out, Beth Tapwa means House of Tapwa, and Tapwa translates as apple, likely with the extended meaning of an apple tree. The origin of that name should be straightforward. This city is located in what was more generically referred to as the Hill Country, and would be included in Judah's allotment. It garnered a few mentions throughout the text of the Old Testament but all of these were of a geographic landmark sort. Joshua 17 provides a bit more insight when it recorded that the land of Tapwa belonged to Manasseh, but the town of Tapwa on the boundary of Manasseh belonged to the Ephraimites. The sense I can make of this was that all of the land associated with the city was off to a single side and fell within Manasseh's allotment but the city itself was on the border between Manasseh and Ephraim, with the buildings in the city, so the city itself, going to Ephraim. What's believed to be the site of the ancient city has yielded archaeological remains of an ancient road, a well, cisterns, and rock cuttings. None of these, though, are dramatic findings. 
the 19th century archaeologist Edward Robinson recorded that it was a Muslim village west of the road from Jerusalem. His extended description was of an old village containing a number of inhabitants and situated in the midst of olive groves and vineyards. Many of the former terraces along the hillsides are still in use, meaning in the 19th century. Several portions of walls, apparently those of an old fortress, were visible among the houses. While the biblical text is certainly less descriptive, in assuming he did correctly identify the ancient biblical city, other researchers from that century would note the same ancient buildings, the road, and olive groves, along with several natural springs. The fertility of the ground and available water certainly added to the longevity of the town. Control of the city and the surrounding area followed that of the region in general, up through the post-World War II creation of the nation of Israel. Following the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, the city would be controlled by Jordan. Then, 19 years later, in 1967, and in the midst of the Six-Day War, and since then, it has been part of Israel, and that's Tapwa. I'm going to wrap up this episode with Adullam, a city that, along with its unnamed king, was defeated by the Israelites. It's on a hilltop overlooking the Elah Valley. This places it west of the Dead Sea, southwest of Jerusalem, and northwest of Hebron. The biblical references to the city are few, but very interesting. Most are of the geographic landmark sort. Joshua does say that it's a city of the plain, meaning in a flat area. But in reality, the region is not flat and is part of the hill country. It was adjacent to the highway, which later became the Roman road in the Valley of Elah. It was in this valley that the young David defeated Goliath. Backing up several hundred years, also nearby, Jacob's son Judah met his wife. The prophet Micah would call the region the glory of Israel. All of this was about the small region in general. More specifically, the future King David sought refuge in Adullam after being expelled from the city of Gath by the Philistine king Achish. 1 Samuel refers to the cave of Adullam, where David found protection while living on the run from King Saul. He would be joined there by about 400 members of his family and allied friends. To this day, natural caves can be found in the hills around the city. Later, but still in the B.C. era, just barely, it was here that Judas Maccabeus retired with his fighting men after returning from war against the Indumeans. As late as the early 4th century A.D., Adullam was described by Eusebius as being a very large village, about 10 Roman miles east of Eleutheropolis. While archaeological evidence shows a former city at the site, it's now mostly olive groves, though the exact identification of the hill with caves as the biblical Adullam is not exactly conclusive, but all of the evidence certainly points in that direction. Also found at the site are cisterns, pottery shards, ancient stone structures, a stone water trough, and a shaft of a stone column. 
there's evidence that the city was large enough to essentially occupy two spots on the hillside, an upper and lower city. Between the time of the rule of the Ottomans, where a 1596 tax document shows it was occupied, and then in the 19th century, between all of this, everyone left, and the ruins were overtaken by vegetation. To that end, it's now a nature preserve in the nation of Israel. In the area around the caves is the aptly named Abdullam Caves Park, with mostly pine forest. The trees, though, are a recent addition, having been planted by post-World War II Jewish immigrants who settled in the Lakish region in the early years of the state. And that's it for Adullam, and provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week, when I'll continue working through Joshua 12. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.